Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Christina Fontana, my guest today, has been a force in the film and TV industry for more than two decades. She began her career in production, working on such indie films as The Station Agent, one of my all-time favorites, Coffee and Cigarettes, and The Motel. She was an editor on documentaries and unscripted TV projects for Fox, NBC, CBS, Netflix, A&E, and the History Channel, to name just a few. Christina received a primetime Emmy nomination for her work on The Amazing Race. In other words, when it comes to her professional life, she is relentless, which, by the way, happens to be the title of her directorial debut. 13 years in the making, Relentless, a six-episode true crime series, tells the story of 21-year-old Christina Whitaker, who disappeared from her hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Using more than 400 hours of footage from field investigations and video diaries, Relentless also chronicles the journey of a filmmaker who becomes dangerously caught up in the story she is telling. We have got a lot of ground to cover, so let's meet and get to know Christina Fontana. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Los Angeles today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Christina, where did the interest in filmmaking and TV production come from? Great question. You know, it's funny because as a child, I didn't realize I had interests so young. Um, when I was in sixth grade, apparently I was showing interest in editing and I didn't have a memory of that. But a teacher from my elementary school saw my mother many years later at a wedding and he asked her, did Christina ever become an editor? Huh. And I I had no memory of that. I was like, wow, I, I, I'm sure I didn't even know what editing was in sixth really? grade. Yeah. So yeah, I must have shown interest. I mean, I remember growing up and loving Steven Spielberg movies and and things like that. But yeah, it, it was it predates my memory having an interest in film. <laughs> so was it a no-brainer on some level that when you went to college, this was going to be an area you were going to pursue? Film and television? You know, when you're 17 years old and you're stepping into the college world, it's so impossible to know exactly what you want to do. So I knew in high school I had an interest in film, but of course my limited scope of what that meant meant well, I must want to be an actor. I, I must want right. to be. So I went to school in a theater program and I minored in media studies. And thankfully, they they let me stay in the program and I had a very wonderful time, but I knew my place wasn't there. I always was running around with my camera in the streets of New York and making little videos with my friends. So eventually I realized that my place was behind the camera and mm-hmm. I started to pursue that then. Where'd you go to college? I went to Marymount, Manhattan. Oh, okay. I went to NYU School of the Arts. Thought I was going to be a great actress one day. Didn't happen, but that's all right. <laughs> it's great to go to school in New York City because Manhattan is your campus. Oh, so come on, was, man. Everything it was incredible. <laughs> you know who my teaching assistant was back in the day? Here's a name. Martin Scorsese. Oh my is that crazy? <laughs> and, that's amazing. Um, and Billy Crystal was in one of my classes. Not that either one of them gets me anything like they would remember, but it was it was a great experience. So when you graduated, you had a feeling that you were going to pursue the arts, right? 
Yes, of course. Uh, while I was in school, actually, I met these really great guys who were working on these independent films. And meeting them, I expressed interest. Well, I'd like to be in production, too. I'd like to do what you're doing. And they said, OK, well, we'll keep you in mind. And I remember the first job that I did. It was out in the middle of Nevada on a series of short films that eventually came together. It was uh, based on uh, Kafka uh, short stories. And these guys called me one day and they said, hey, our production assistant got pneumonia. We need you to front your own ticket and fly out and work for free. And I remember sitting on my stoop and my father came to me. He said, do you think this is really going to help you? And I said, dad, I have a feeling I really want to do this. And I went out to Nevada. It was, it was a remarkable experience in the middle of the desert. Completely start- cold, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I met these guys once or twice, and but I ended up working with them for many years, and I started to learn under these guys, and we became a crew in all these indie films um, that you had mentioned. And some of these guys have gone on to do amazing things. Craig Zobel was one of my guys, and he just came out with um, Mayor of Easttown on HBO. So everybody sure. really has mm-hmm. gone on to do amazing things. So it was the right decision, and I'm, and I'm very grateful that my dad backed me up. So they, in addition to hiring you, also mentored you. Yes, exactly. You know, we all became a little crew together. And being a production assistant on set, I was this wide-eyed kid trying to understand what I liked. And, you know, I loved helping the grips. I loved helping the camera department. But, you know, my role was in the production area. So I started climbing the chain in the assistant director, you know, direction. I started second seconding and people started Mm -hmm. offering me second AD. And I realized at that time that while I loved the experiences that I was having on set, I had um, a passion for documentaries and and real life situations. And I was still playing around with editing uh, my own little things. And I was lucky enough to make the switch, which not everybody gets to do. I was working with a friend and he was in production and he said, you know, I, I've been working at this company, Stick Figure Entertainment, who are one of my partners now on this on this project, Relentless. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a place at the company and started me out with assistant editing. And, and then I became an editor through learning from them. So every opportunity, you know, if you pay attention to the opportunities in every situation, they really can take you to the next place. Well, also... If you're good, that happens as well. Yeah, I mean, you have to own that in addition to happenstance or being at the right place at the right time kind of thing. When you started out with these fellows, I would have to assume that females were not very ubiquitous. Yeah, I was always, no matter what role I had, it was mm. always one of the very few women in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I had a um, strong personality. Um, I mean, we were all from New York, but I was that strong Italian from New York. And mm-hmm. and you're right, I did own each and every one of my roles. And I, I went into all of them with full force and people noticed. So I think as a woman, you know, and it, it's funny because it's not funny, it's actually sad. I have many other women in my industry that I work alongside with that would come to me and say, how do you do it? How do you just talk in the room with such confidence because these guys push me aside? And it it is a thing that happens, but I refuse to allow my voice to be minimized in the room um, Mm -hmm. and, and got my place as an equal. 
during the course of my conversations and the years doing this in the more recent past, there have been so many female filmmakers that it has just been so heartwarming, whether they're doing documentaries or features. And yeah, I mean, I'm of a certain age and I go back way back and they just weren't there the way they are today. And that is just a long time coming, but very heartening. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I've seen evolve even in my um, experience, you know, starting out in the indie film world and going through post-production and now this project. And I feel very grateful to be in a position where so many women before me fought for my place at the table. Mm -hmm. And I feel very fortunate to be part of the next, you know, you know, team that keeps Waves. doors open mm-hmm. yeah, for yeah. Women in the future. Mm-hmm. For sure. I just wanted context. What what time frame are we talking about? 90s? Yeah, um, I graduated from college in 2001. So I, be, I started working in film in 98, 99 when I started doing my production um, mm-hmm. experiences then. So you mixed the big screen with the small screen and you were able to make that transition rather seamlessly. Yeah, you know, again, I, I because I, I put myself wholeheartedly into um, my my role as an editor, and I did have a knack for it. I, I do feel that at the core of my being, I'm an editor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it was funny. One of the the guys at Stick Figure, he had gone on vacation or done some job, and he came back a few months later, and he says, "You really harpooned through this company." And you know, it, it was fortunate enough for me that. Where I was at, they were giving me little things to cut. You know, I started out as an assistant editor, but they needed help on some documentaries that they were working on. So they kept giving me scenes to cut and this and that. And all of a sudden I was an associate editor and then they made me an editor. And it was it was a combination um, because I do know a lot of talented people, but because of the companies that they're at, they are not giving assistant editors the opportunities to make a jump. So that was a very fortunate experience for me. Was the Amazing Race, how's this for understatement, huge for you? Yeah, I love being a part of the Amazing Race family. I am still a part of the Amazing Race family. It is one of the most gratifying shows that I've ever worked on. And I have to say, because, you know, and you'll see in the documentary series that I have out now, a lot of times I I do these diary cams and I'm in an edit bay because I'm at work. This happened in real time. Yeah. And it was wonderful to be able to, during the week, during the day, work on a show like The Amazing Race that is so uh, exhilarating and loving and fun. And uh, iconic. Yeah. And to balance the dark stuff that I was dealing with in this uh, documentary series. So let's move over to that. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, this marks your directorial debut. You gave birth to this. You filmed it. You're in it. You researched it. How many different hats did you have on, woman? Yeah, this was a very difficult show to put together. And even the rest of my very uh, creative and talented team all say that it was the hardest show that they've been on. I was wearing a lot of hats, as you said. And it is so monumental to me. This week has been so surreal since the series dropped on Discovery Plus because I'm finally seeing it. And it's not just a... 
a project that I was a part of. It was my life. I'm sharing mm. my life with everyone. This case and this story, it sucked me in. It was not my intention to be a part of this, to be on screen. But because of the many allegations and rumors in this case, I became a part of the story. So that was, uh, it took a, a big emotional toll on my life. And I get very candid about that in the show. But yeah, it seeing this now, even this conversation is so surreal to me because it was just me for so many years, me and my DP running around and, mm-hmm. and I didn't know what I had. It was just, you know, the, the, the rabbit hole that I was falling down. So I, I'm so grateful to be able to share it with people. Well, 13 years is a lifetime. Yeah, I, I, a lot of uh, growing pains in this process. Um, I jumped in very naive. I wanted to help this family. Um, you know, Tell the can- story. So in 2007, I decided to do a documentary on what it was like for families of the missing. I had a friend whose brother went missing, and I, I really connected to the plight that her family went through and how she had to take control of her own case. Many families of the missing, when their missing loved one is an adult in particular, they feel the need to take control of their case because adults have the right to go missing. So I said, okay, I'd like to share these stories. And I started meeting families all over the country. And I was working closely with a nonprofit and helping them out. And I met the family of Christina Whitaker at a retreat for families of the missing in 2010. And I was taken aback by Christina's mother's tenacity and passion for finding Christina and the fact that she had active leads. She believed that she tracked Christina to a 20 block radius in a town that was 200 miles away from where they lived. They grew up in Hannibal, Missouri. So she felt the need to carry her own investigation and she had moved to Peoria to to search full time. And she just needed a little bit of help. And I I was taken aback. I said, okay, I'm going to help you. I'm going to follow and and let's do this. And uh, a couple years went by. Things were a little peculiar, as as you'll see in episode one. And because of certain allegations, I ended up getting sucked into the story. And then after that, hundreds of leads had come in, rumors, sightings, suspects. And all of a sudden, I found myself in this world of major drug operations, police corruption, organized crime, murder in a place I never dreamed that I would be in. And allegations were flying at everyone in Christina's life, including the family and the police. So it took so many different turns that I was not expecting. Did you basically relocate to Hannibal and Peoria? Yeah, you know, that's why it was a very exhausting process for me because I was paying for it all. Yeah, that's the other thing. So I, I was working. I was trying to get these jobs on reality TV shows and the wonderful shows like The Amazing Race. But I was flying out. Oh, I would take a red eye on a Friday and I'd be back Monday morning to go to work. Wow. Wow. And then I'd come home and I'd try to muster up the energy to edit, to put together. What do I have? You know, and, and I was lucky enough to um, bring on some investigators, but I was paying for it all myself and trying to figure this out. And it was exhausting. But because of the very strange turns it was taking, it became an obsession of mine that I have to understand what is happening here because it started happening to me and I wouldn't let it go. And that's what ended up becoming relentless. It also speaks volumes that we see you on camera and you don't hold back either. 
you're yelling and you're exhausted and your eyes tear up. And that's not usually what happens with a director. You are, and I say this positively, you are an integral part of the series. Yes, you know, and and I decided to keep everything as raw as possible. I tried not to go very stylized with the show because when I entered the case, it seemed like a very open and closed case of a girl who had gone missing because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the more I started digging deeper, all of the walls of that narrative came down. So I wanted to take all the walls down, which is why I did the diary cams. And we were very run and gun. I was doing interviews in hotel rooms. I flipped on my camera at work, fresh out of the shower, back from the gym, because this was happening in real time. And I wanted the audience to feel what I was feeling in the moment, because we can all collect a lot of material and comment on it later. But in order to truly understand how confusing it was for me to continue to push on, but having all of these things thrown at me, I wanted to comment right then and there what was happening to me. Talk about the families. You're filming everything. And I assume, and I've spoken to other documentary filmmakers, that at some point your subjects don't even realize you're there. Right. Um, You know, it's the family welcomed me with open arms in the beginning, and I jumped in very naively, which again, I get very candid about in the show. And as I uncover more and more, our relationship complicates. Mm. And I think one of the lessons that I hope people come away with is that when families of the missing feel the need to carry the weight of their own investigations, things get very messy. Families are an objective. Uh, Parents have a natural tendency to want to protect their children from judgment, themselves from judgment. And there's a natural fear to not want to put things out there because what if people look at you in a certain light, they won't want to help. Right. And there's a patronizing almost, isn't there? Wow. They're not You're exactly right. And one of the hard lessons I had to learn, because I was still protecting the family along the way, even though things were getting thrown at me. And in the later episodes, I admit that, that I was holding back on some things, but it's time to put everything on the table that is germane to the case. Because if we don't put everything out there, we are trying to solve a puzzle without all the pieces. And that's part of the reason why I think this has gone on for so long. And then I really start, you know, the last three episodes become a thrill ride of just following these leads and just having these revelations that we need to confront everything that people are throwing at us because that will bring Christina home. What the hell was the editing process like? You must have had an Everest of footage. Yeah, over 400 hours of footage. Yeah, like I said, yeah, hello. (laughs) Yeah. So um, one of the things that I am grateful for is that I am an editor. So I was trying my best along the way to not put all of these cards and tapes, you know, we're going back to 2010 in a pile and and give it to some editors, you know, if, if ever one day this came to light. So I was trying to organize the project as best I could. But what I found out was, and we all found out in, in the post process, is that I was the only one who knew where everything was. And it is impossible to ask producers and editors to go through all of that footage. It would have taken years. So I did have to wear so many roles that I would be there and say, okay, I'm the only one who knew what conversation I had on June 10th of 2013. So don't worry, I'll go dig for it. So I was pounding my keyboard even alongside all the producers and editors. I didn't edit any of my show. 
I was way too close to this footage. Ah, mm-hmm. and one of the smartest things I think I, I did was realize that I needed a co-showrunner. I brought on a showrunner, George Mull, who is an amazing storyteller. He comes from a journalism background because I knew that I needed people that would challenge me because I am so close to this footage. I am in it. So I needed people to say, okay, let's take a step back. Everything is in your head and you, and you think, we, we need to heal, hear all of these details, but we don't. And they helped me pare it down. When I started the beginning of post-production, I said, okay, everybody, I whittled down the list of people of interest to 76 people. <laughs> I was like, whoa. In the footage? Yeah, that's how many people that had um, interesting things, leads, suspects. There are so many things that came about in this process that that's how much we were dealing with, with trying to put the show together. It begs the question, how did the Whitaker family take to the episodes? Uh, Yes, it's a very hard process to go through. And I've had conversations with the family and I know it's still a hard process for them. And I think they're still processing it. I try to be as, as open as possible that every time things were thrown at me, I tried to go to the family on camera, off camera, look, these things are being said, but it's still a shock when you see it. So I know it's a hard process. I know it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, But again, I still wholeheartedly believe that we have to put everything out there and recognize that a lot of these things are just rumors. Um, But that's a part of the process of what families of the missing go through. And I've seen other families go through the same thing, that um, it's part of the story. And it was a part of our very difficult journey. It was a surprise to me, naively so, that families feel marginalized by police and detectives and that they feel that they don't have a leg to stand on. Exactly right. And there are so many great law enforcement agencies. And I've actually worked with um, on other cases because, again, I started the project on many families and I've seen law enforcement officers, uh, police and sheriff's department and paramedics. They, on their spare time, will join volunteer search and rescue efforts because they are so dedicated to helping families. And I think a lot of the issues come down to training. So um, many of these police departments I've learned may come across one missing person case, long-term missing person case in their entire career, and they're not equipped to to deal with it, the long-term efforts of funding and training. Mm -hmm. So I have had families come to me and tell me, well, I went down to the police and they told me, well, we don't know, maybe aliens took them, or maybe they were just tired of you and they left. And- you're a so family. dismissive. Oh, yeah. Man. And you're, you're trying to process that emotion. And to hear those types of things, what a desperate feeling. Who do I turn to for help? And they, they feel, you know, the need to carry their own investigations. But what's also interesting in this day and age is when people give up on somebody and then all the DNA, all of a sudden, Mary Smith, we now know where she is, that we've made great strides Exactly right. And there are those very rare cases where you'll see all these girls were held in this house for 10 years and and everyone holds on to that hope. And I think the thing that people should realize, too, with families of the missing, it is an ongoing trauma. It's one awful thing to have someone in your family die and then to process that. But to have this ongoing not knowing, how do I go to work? 
knowing that my child might be out there crying for me and the, and the trauma that that causes. And I learned a lot about it, that it actually changes the chemical makeup of your brain, wow. you know, the cortisol levels and all that science, because it is so, um, y- your body doesn't know how to process it. When all was said and done and footage was edited and it came down to six episodes, where were you psychically with this? I have two leads that stand taller than the rest, and we have some very major revelations that come out in episode six. And I believe the answers lie with one or two more people coming out and being brave. Uh, You know, since the first three episodes dropped, I've had my phone ringing off the hook with people in Hannibal that would, would like to speak about the case and some of the corruption that they see in town. And they are seeing other people in the show, being brave and speaking out, and they now feel safe enough to speak out as well. So my hope is is that more of that will happen, and then we can get to a conclusion in the case. So that that would involve you? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely collecting all of these stories, potentially for a follow-up episode. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a podcast, maybe there's something that we can do, or or maybe we just pass these tips to law enforcement, which of course we, we do anyway. Right. So to me, I feel connected to Christina Whitaker. I feel connected to this case. I want to see it through. Also, I've been keeping in touch with other families of the missing and other families who would like to see justice in their murdered loved one's case. And they're being relentless in their own right. So I'd love to share their stories as well, as much as we can to get it all out there. You have to put relentless on this really high pedestal for many, many reasons, not the least of which is, it begs this question, would you like to do this again with you as in on screen and and being an integral part of a documentary series? Yeah, I mean, of course, you couldn't do another over decades long journey on another case. (laughs) But I think that's where maybe there's an opportunity to now speak to people who have been putting a decade into their own cases and are being relentless in their own way. And maybe I could help give them a platform to share their stories, to get justice in their own cases, which is why I feel very fortunate being at Discovery Plus because they care so much about justice and bringing these stories to light as well. So I think it's a really amazing partnership to say, okay, who else can we help here? So it's more than a series, it's a public service. Well, I, I you know, I always felt that personally, if you could find a way to combine service work with a medium that you love, that is just a, a very fulfilling way to spend my day. So I I love, I feel connected to this community, the small community of families of the missing. And I, yes, I, I definitely would like to help share more of those stories. What's the next step for you? Would you like to direct a feature, for example? I think my, my lane would be uh, the true crime space. Okay. Um, I'd be happy to see if anybody was interested in sharing, you know, a story like Relentless um, in a scripted version, but that's not me. I definitely have been working in the non-scripted world for many years, and that's where I feel my space is. So you own your own production company for all intents and purposes, right? And then you hire freelancers for whatever positions need to be filled. Although you wear, like I said, so many hats that you do so much. Yeah. My production company is an army of one. So for (laughs) me, you know, it's, um, I'll bring on maybe some crew members, but I was fortunate enough to 
bring on Stick Figure Entertainment, who is an established company. They make wonderful documentaries. And then Blumhouse Television to help us to get to discovery. So um, I don't operate as a very large company. I'm still very much an independent filmmaker. And I bring on the companies that have Mm -hmm. the power to help. But that's worked for you. Yeah. Yes, Yes, it has. You've got this very rich background. And then seeing you exasperated, overworked, frustrated, sad. It's, it's a real departure. I'm not used to that. Yeah. And I, I, that's, again, I wanted to be so real and raw with, with everyone that what I was going through so people could experience it alongside with me. So yeah, it's changed me on going through this experience. So as far as next steps, I always you know, I'm, I get calls from my family over an amazing race. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know what's next for me on my plate. All of this is happening so fast, but I'll, I'll talk to you in a couple months. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, okay, of course, you know, no problem. And I love them so dearly for that. But yeah, so right now is like, okay, you know, we have the opportunity now to share these other stories of other people getting that emotional and that raw. And I, I'm definitely turning my focus to that. I think there's definitely something here that we can we can go on with. Mm. If I was your fairy godmother, you would ask me what? <sighs> well, if I could sit down and have a conversation with Christina Whitaker, that would be mm. that would be my wish. And and you know, it's it's more over than to find out what happened that night exactly. Um, man, I, I feel so connected to this girl that I've never met. It, it's a pretty wild situation. Sure, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And her family and friends, everyone speaks so highly of her. She was a very loving person. And I'd love to just finally get to meet the person that has consumed my life for over a decade. And there is still a connection with the Whitaker family in Hannibal? Not with the same lens. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of raw emotion. And again, it's to me, I've always wanted to share the truth in the kindest way possible and to say that families of the missing go through this. And they knew that in the beginning because they shared all these stories with me of people trying to extort them for money and, and accuse them of this and that. However, there are some... There are some things that needed to be brought to light because if you pick and choose the facts that you give people, it makes it very difficult for them to help. And and that's what I experienced and their own private investigators experienced. So I think being very truthful about about that confusing experience was important to me because um, there were people coming at me with all sorts of things and I, and I didn't know who to trust. And, mm. and there's also other allies that I have in the series and the later episodes you'll find that I really thought I could trust. And it turns out I could not. Yeah. And that was, um, man, it was a really big emotional blow. And, and as you see, and it'll increase my emotions in the show, get very, mm-hmm. very raw and powerful. Yeah, that's a risk we take and it may not work for somebody else. And I'm sure that that must have happened during the course of this filming. Hey, wait a minute. Why did you include this and not include that? And and especially, even though you had other people work with you, you're carrying this thing on your back basically by yourself. Yeah, of course. And I wanted to pare it down to recognizing that we're not, I didn't actually put everything out there. There were some pretty crazy things that we felt, okay, I need to acknowledge that um, these accusations, let's say against the family, had come my way. I'm not going to put it out there in a way that 
that sensationalizes it, milks it, but it happened. So if I can just recognize that these accusations came at me, and I also recognize that I don't know them to be true, but this is a very confusing moment. And I think that's what the diary cams help do is say, whoa, this person just told me this. Like, how am I supposed to process this? Right, I'm, right. I'm supposed to be on their team. Like, do I tell them? Do I not? What would you do in this situation? So I think that was the best way that I knew how to process everything that was coming at me. Yes, I think that it, it speaks to your talent and your expertise to feel that I was in the trailer <laughs> that Christina Whitaker's mother and stepfather lived in. And that when I was watching you, it's like, oh, man, you know, what would I do in that situation? So you got to own that. This is uh, quite something that you have done. It is an amazing undertaking. And it's really I mean, it's like being pregnant for 13 years, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time. That's a hell of a gestation period. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what you've given birth to is pretty impressive. Christina Fontana, it's so interesting and fascinating to meet and get to know you. I ask you to keep us in your loop and whatever is coming your way. We'd love to promote it. Love to hear about what's next up for you. I hope you get to take a vacation. <laughs> yeah, I have plans to go to Disneyland and and harness my inner child again and just think happy thoughts for a little while. So. Well, it would be interesting if you got into It's a Small World because that's what you just came from, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's only getting stuck on the ride. There you go. Well, thank you so much for sharing your passion and your life with us. It's been really interesting and I feel really lucky to have met you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.